If you want to protect yourself with gold and silver, you've got to get the physical. Please do not pay attention to these derivative markets. They're not real markets. They now have to keep printing or we crash. We've got this ticking time bomb. Talking gold with the one and only Andrew McGuire. Welcome to Live from the Vault. Welcome to Live from the Vault. My name is Shane Moran and I'll be your host for this episode and from the entire Live from the Vault team worldwide. We want to thank you for your continued support. And as you can imagine, the community keeps growing more and more every single week and we thank you. You know, there's a lot to talk about during these historic times and Andrew McGuire is in the house with a first-time guest, Mr. Robert Keynes, and we'll be talking gold. This is going to be an amazing episode, so fasten your seatbelts. You know, Live from the Vault gives you access to information and updates that you just can't get anywhere else. And then just before we go to Talking Gold with Andrew McGuire and our special guest, we just want to hear from you, our Live from the Vault community, on who you'd love to see as a guest on this show. So to have your say, just click on the link in the description below and head over to our Twitter or simply just reply to the tweet by tagging your dream Live from the Vault guest. And we'll be keeping a close eye on this for the results. So with that... Let me introduce our special guest. Robert Keynes is the president, owner, founder of Gold Silver Pros in Dallas-Fort Worth. He's a precious metals analyst, an economic forecaster with a strong, here's a clue, background in auditing. And I think you're in for a special treat today with that. Let's head over to the UK and Talking Gold with the one and only Andrew McGuire and our special guest, Mr. Robert Keynes. Well, Rob, if I can call you Rob, it's, it really is my pleasure to have you and a privilege to have you on uh, as a first-time guest on Live from the Vault. And I know I've been on your uh, production uh, um, and and that was, oh, goodness me, that was quite some time ago. Um, But thank you very much for joining us today and I'm really looking forward to uh, catching up a bit. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's it's a pleasure to be on. I've followed this program for a long time and and appreciate you having me as a guest. You just recently... um, did uh, what I thought was, and I, I talked about this in, in my episode, which is being released uh, this past Friday, this Friday, that you did an absolutely excellent job of digging into the recent uh, Bank of International Settlements report, which was outlining uh, derivative solvency risk. And, and as I said, honestly, well done, Rob. This is, you have a strong audit background um, and what it, you did there was take a very, very complex subject and you distilled it uh, down admirably, in my view. Um, and uh, also your precious metal educational work is actually well worth following. So I did say to people, they really ought to follow you if they're not following you already. But but uh, could you could you go? I, it really got my attention there because I think, you know, you the way you explained that, what, what, what was your major point um, that you were trying to make there? I, the major point was that the derivatives complex in which these banks are engaged in is, is highly fragile. Um, it really, Andy, goes to the point about complex systems. The more complex you make a system, the more fragile that ends up being because there are so many connection points and things that have to go right for that system to work. And the derivatives complex is based upon this really difficult, complex mathematical calculations about risk. But the major point is a lot of the assumptions that go into those calculations 
or a lot of the data that goes in the, the calculations are assumptions. And those assumptions may not be super well founded. So, and if any of those assumptions doesn't go according to Hoyle, it can cause the whole system to begin to break down. And last point, the derivatives complex and the connection through the four largest banks that run the, those derivative market, not just precious metal derivative, but we're talking interest rate, credit default, swap, equity, all of it. The whole $200 trillion uh, bowl, uh, ball of wax is run by four banks and their risk amongst these markets is intertwined. So it takes one of these derivative markets to, to experience pressure, will put pressure on the entire derivative complex and therefore the banks as well. And that's really the takeaway. Super fragile system, it's all connected and it's all dominated by four large banks that if any one of them blows up, we're back to where we were in 2008, 2009 with the Lehman issue. Which was not one of the reasons why uh, this Basel, uh, or the Basel uh, structure, the Basel III structure, uh, was brought in really as, as to address um, this this huge 2008 breakout. I think it was originally put together in 2014. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. They they knew that they had the need in 2012 to do tighter banking standards, but also a better measure of banking risk. They realized the previous measures of risk didn't predict what happened in 2008, 2009. So they wanted to revamp that. And I think from <clears throat> obviously being very much focused on the gold side of things and gold and silver side of things, of course, <clears throat> a couple of things really sprung, sprung to mind when, when I was listening to this and looking at this um, is, of course, that that aspect. And, and you say it's these same four banks uh, who are uh, involved in trillions of dollars of basically of, of cross cross uh, derivative structures, over the counter structures. Um, uh, and with huge counterparty risk associated with them. Uh, and I think, you know, <clears throat> as you kind of rightly point out, that is based on these derivatives historically have been evolved to be based on um, a stable, a stable currency. Um, and now we see fiat currencies mm. imploding. Um, and I think that that really got my attention. And then with a particular focus on the precious metal side of things. Um, so, and you're going over that, you went over that um, in, in your report quite, you know, very, very well. Um, so, so what do you see? And obviously one of the points you made, which was a very important point, is while um, they have, because of the, the, the global problems, because of the really just trying to balance what is a, a very difficult situation, a very, an imploding financial system. Um, what they've done is, is waived Basel III requirements for every asset class virtually, except gold. Can you, can you go through that for us, please? Yeah, so I'll try to distill it down into simple concepts. I wanted to preface the discussion with saying it's, it's highly complex and really, please go back and read the documents or view our presentation you know, to understand it. But a simple concept is about two thirds of the $200 trillion uh, derivative complex are backed up with cash as collateral. And so if any of the fiat currencies experiences issues, it essentially what it does is it directly affects the solvency risk of the banking system, especially the four largest banks, which are JP Morgan, 
Citibank, Goldman Sachs, and um, uh, what, is, what is the other Citigroup, uh, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and uh, <laughs> blanking on the last one. In any case, so what happens is where we have all the fiat currencies racing to the bottom, Andrew, and you're familiar with this concept, they're all debasing. The, the major assumption that cash, a dollar today is worth a dollar tomorrow, that's in these formulas for solvency risk is not really recognized. And so what happens is what the banks have essentially done is they've taken all the risk of their system and they've used it as collateral for these derivatives. So if the currencies move down or the bond market comes under stress or interest rates move up, it affects their solvency. And, and the formulas that they use to determine the solvency risk are really based on the assumption that cash will never go away. And we know, you know throughout history, Andrew, that's really not the case. And specifically, as it relates to the precious metals, um, what happened in 2022 as a result of all these regulations written years ago was they had to formally recognize the risk in the precious metal sector with these derivative positions for the first time. And so there's a chart we showed in which in 2022, the notional amount of precious metals derivatives was much higher than ever had been previously reported. So effectively that had been hiding all this risky derivative exposure the banks had. Now, a lot of us have, over the years, Andrew, gone over the COMEX data and pointed this out, the four largest banks and who they are, and that they have all this precious metals derivative risk, and further, that they're using these derivatives to manipulate the market for precious metals. But to see it in an office of the Comptroller Currency Report from the US government put so plainly, I think will surprise a lot of people. And so it, two main takeaways, a lot of their assumptions are, I think were put in place with hubris and arrogance as to the stability of the system. The stability of the banks is dependent upon the stability of the dollar and the other currencies in the bond market. And we know right now that those aren't the most stable areas of the economy for reasons we talk about all the time. And further, the amount of exposure they had to insolvency or going out of business because of their precious metals exposure had been understated throughout history until this year when the BIS said, no, we need you to actually start to pull that out and to focus on it as its own risk factor. They had hidden it in, in the currency exchange risk, but precious metals and currency aren't the same thing. The precious metals and, and the fiat currencies, Andrew, we know aren't the same thing. So now for the first time we have the picture of really how much risk these banks have, but not only how much risk they have to the precious metals if the prices were to rise, but also the fact that they use these derivatives to set the market, and it's just four banks. And that's always been considered conspiracy theory among, de among detractors who say, yeah, that's not true, you guys are making that up, it's not how it works. But again, it's in the office of the Comptroller of the Currencies Report, and they name these banks, and they show you their positions. It's really, interesting to be able to confirm what we've all, all, always known by going through this information. So, so one of the benefits, <clears throat> obviously from a gold perspective, uh, uh, NSFR standards really are, have been very helpful and we'll talk, talk about that in a minute, but I think one of, the, one of the benefits then is although they've waived a lot of the um, NSFR requirements for general derivatives other than gold, um, what it's caused is them to report what was previously hidden. Because when you looked at that, when you showed that chart, 
And we're talking, I mean, and we're going to provide a link to this because when people look at it, it's, it's mind-boggling. And you just see what was hidden is now disclosed. That's what we're saying, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think Basil, because of the Lehman meltdown in a nutshell, they realized that the banking system to stay stable, we had to have better measures of risk and we had to address the solvency risk by having better collateralized assets. In other words, have enough good stuff on the balance sheet that if the mortgage market blows up again, it doesn't take down the banking system in a nutshell. But that what that required them to do to keep the banking system going was to shed a lot more light as to what these people are actually investing in and how they use it to move and manipulate the markets. And when I say manipulation, I don't say that meaning there's necessarily a nefarious goal to, to hurt a certain group of people. I just mean whenever you're in a big derivative market and you've got trillions of dollars going into it, you therefore are setting the market. You're manipulating that price back and forth. And so it almost doesn't matter what your position is in the market. If the market moves against you, that's a risk. So they could be net short and the market goes long, that's a risk. They could be net long and the market goes you know, short, that's a risk. And that's really what I wanted to point out. For the first time, we see how fragile that system is and we see it's not, it's not built on a strong foundation. It's built on a foundation of sand with a lot of assumptions that are spurious or not well thought out or not well documented. And not only that, but they use those derivative positions to set markets. And not only the precious metals market, but all the markets, Andrew, the real estate market, uh, the prices for, for securities and real estate, the prices for equities, the prices for bonds, all of that stuff is done and is managed through the derivative market. And we now see with, with these t- tighter standards how thin the banks are from a solvency perspective, how much risk that they actually have. And now, like, as you pointed out, we can enumerate specifically how the precious metals place into that, where it's very difficult to do that before. Yeah, being, being really the only asset class that I can see <clears throat> that has technically, uh, under NSFR standards, zero counterparty risk. So. Although we do see, I mean, obviously we track the markets as closely, as I'm sure, as you do. Um, and, um, and so basically when we see um, a COMEX position, for example, um, then expand the exchange for physical spread to the point where we see larger and larger backwardations. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, what people know, what, I know you know what it is, but when people are questioning what's a backwardation or well, a backwardation is when you've got a futures price out in the future and we saw this in silver uh, this this week already and even this morning where we see a september silver contract a further out contract trading at a discount to the cash silver market what does that tell you it tells us what it tells us is that that something's very very wrong so now as far as gold now silver's not uh, doesn't trade under NSFR standards, but gold does. So uh, essentially what happens is when we see this exchange for physical, and we're seeing backwardations in gold consistently now. I mean, and so it, there comes a point where it's arbitrable. It is actually, it is, it is able to be capitalized. Um, and I think what people fail to realize is that when, um, when gold is sold and it is then... It is EF exchange, EFP'd, exchange for physical transaction occurs that feeds into the spot market. Technically, that is immediately 
none NSFR stand so now that that immediately qualifies as an NSFR position, i.e., it has to be physically backed by the by the liquidity provider yes. holding that position. Now, I guess one of the real bugbears that we 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 um, run into is while that is true, there is a back door, and currently the back door is the GLD ETF, because we know that the back, that the GLD ETF, and they've even made statements saying we don't necessarily, if it's inconvenient, have to deliver this, is that, uh, just like silver, but, but again, we're talking about gold, that's not, it's clearly not NSFR compliant, because what, it, what it essentially you're taking is, is an, an EFP position converted into a spot position, a spot gold credit position, which forces, if it's not, um, if it isn't channeled into GLD, it has to be physically backed. But we're seeing big portions of the trouble is, is that so many of the hedge funds and et cetera, et cetera, who are not able to trade physical will actually go and use, will go and use this ETF to purchase gold, to use it for hedging for whatever. But there, there's no physical side to this. So it's just one more flywheel which is just gold credit being shuffled. So it's an interesting situation. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, what the, what the Basel requirements have done with NSFR and what I talked about on my show recently with the, with the counterparty credit risk or the derivatives, what it's done is it's shown, Andrew, exactly what you said. Most of what people associate with gold and silver are derivative products that aren't backed one for one with an ounce of actual owned gold and silver that has clear chain of title. It's not rehypothecated or sold to someone else a hundred times. And, and in the silver squeeze last year, when you saw that that run on SLV, which is a derivative product for silver, SLV stores its actual ounces of silver in the UK. And, and that pile of silver backs up the SLV. So we saw 110 million ounces of silver demand in the SLV in three days. And it came out later from uh, the London OTC market um, and the people that run that, that they said that if that run had continued for another five, six, seven days, they would have run out of silver. In other words, you can buy an unlimited amount of SLV, but at the point at which you actually have to back it with silver, they didn't have enough. That's where we knew there wasn't enough silver, free silver in the London market to support even this one fund, SLV. And that's not the only ETF that stores their silver there. So we began to realize last year, Andrew, how thin that silver market was. And then, of course, if you look at the COMEX, which I do all the time on my channel because I'm here in the U.S., so that's our predominant you know, silver market, you realize that for every open interest on the COMEX, a futures position, there's only a fraction of those that ever physically settle. So you know that the majority of that silver supply and demand really is just price exposure. It's not backed by an ounce of silver. So there are these synthetic derivative silver products sitting on the market, which imitate supply and demand for silver, but don't actually aren't actually anchored in the physical. And what Basel has done, because the last banking crisis, the Lehman crisis has actually been the best thing for the precious metals industry. For those of us who want honesty and transparency, because all these requirements like NSFR and SACCR, all this Basel III stuff is basically highlighting where there's all this demand for gold and silver industrially and from an investment perspective, but there's not a lot of, of real physical supply. 
it's all supplied through these derivative products. And at the point in which, Andrew, people run to safety, because throughout history, there have been periods of time in which we've had a currency issue or a major economic issue, a depression, a recession, whatever, credit blow up, tech crisis, you know, oil crisis in the 70s, whatever you want, interest rate crisis, people run to gold and silver. This time, Andrew, when they run, they're not going to run to the derivative products. What they're going to do is run to the physical because they're going to go to the derivative products and they say, I can't actually get redemption. In SLV and GLD, these ETFs, you cannot get redemption unless you have, you're an authorized participant or have 50,000 shares. That's not most people. So in other words, they limit how much you can actually get a hold of. And the same thing on the futures positions, they're futures trades. You're betting on the price, but you're not, most of those contracts aren't settled in physical, right? Same thing with London OTC market. There's a lot of derivative trading on top of the actual metal. So when people run to safety, these the actual metal is going to empty out very quickly. And the way I described that on my program this week was it's Exeter's Pyramid. If you're familiar with Exeter's Pyramid, gold and silver sits on the bottom as the ultimate asset, and everything else is a derivative on top, including currencies and bonds and stocks. What happens is Exeter Pyramid is going to fold in on itself. So all of that value that was previously put in all these derivatives is going to fold down into gold and silver, and that's where you get your higher gold and silver prices. When people realize, Andrew, the risk in the banking system, they realize they need to be a flight to safety because the currencies are crashing, the bond rates are rising, they can't make money that way, stock markets are receding, we have you know, an economic pullback due to interest rates and inflation, they're going to run to gold and silver, and all that value that's sitting in those derivatives is going to flow down to the metals. And it's going to be people that actually have the physical, Andrew, that are going to benefit from that, not the people with SLV, GLD, any of these ETFs, or these synthetic COMEX or London market positions. Those people aren't going to have a chair when the music stops. And that's what people really need to understand. If you want to protect yourself with gold and silver, you've got to get the physical. Please do not pay attention to these derivative markets. They're not real markets. Yeah, I think yeah, but that's sage advice. And, and I think, you know, again, that's, that's pretty much how we end all our shows is like, how much physical do you have? Because um, I think... You know, we're talking about the exchangeability. When, when people realize that there's an exchangeability between a COMEX, undeliverable COMEX position, and GLD, COMEX position, and an SLV position. And it's just exchangeable. So really, all you're doing is shuffling paper credit. And no one is, there's no, nothing meets the road at this point. And, and as you say, uh, the, the, they make it really onerous. And, and it's the average person, as you say, cannot take, go to an authorized position participant and take delivery. Nor would you. Why would you even go through that process? It's clearly, uh, it's ring fence. Because if I want to take delivery and I have a COMEX position, I'll EFP it. I'll put it into the spot market. Yeah, I'm going to have to pay a premium. And in fact, the more, the more size I want, the bigger the premium. But essentially, I can then spot index that position in the spot market and make sure it doesn't have to go anywhere near GLD. And then we can then go through the T plus two delivery process. And one of the beautiful things about which doesn't appear to be the case if you look at the charts, but it is the case, is that, as we say, once you then move, take that position and you spot index it into the uh, into the spot market, into the XAU, 
market, which is the XAU cross between the dollar, XAU cross between the euro, whatever it is, but essentially it's a foreign exchange cross. You're now taking, saying, I want, I turn around uh, to the liquidity provider. And in, 2000, in March 2020, when we turned around, when people turned around to the liquidity provider and said, just give it to me, okay? Uh, think, I can't get the physical, the Swiss refiners are on COVID lockdown, can't get my usual sources. Okay, you've just provided credit, I'll take it. And then, of course, we saw $8,500 spreads as people, as the liquidity providers have bailed out to get, um, the, to find short cover in the COMEX. And of course, the spreads rose and they got rinsed and, you know, like 200 million lost by Goldman Sachs. And of course, all, all those guys got bailed out, but yeah. not the small second tier uh, banks, Swiss banks that we deal with, they were suck it up. In fact, a lot of them exited that space directly afterwards. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that is that when you do do that, when you actually do EFP it, now there is an ability to take a physical product. So this is an interesting time. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I do think we're starting to see, Andrew, we're starting to see the premiums blow out between, you know, what the retail people can get and what you see on the spot price. And I think also in addition, and you kind of alluded to this, we're seeing an arbitrage opportunity between markets with the with the NFP, or I'm sorry, the EFP, the exchange for physical between uh, the UK and the US. But there's new player in town, a couple of new players in the town, uh, Andy, uh, China, the Shanghai, which is a much higher physically delivered market. And if you look at Shanghai gold prices, they're much higher than what we have in the Western markets. And so in the Asian trade, through physical trade, you see more accurate price discovery of what gold should be valued at and silver should be valued at. But now they're starting to compete with the Western markets. And then you had France recently decide to reopen their gold trading business. So they have established vaults and, and they spent millions of dollars rehabbing all their old vaults that they used to store gold in. They have developed software in order to get on these exchanges and trade. So you're starting to see the rest of the world kind of clue into the fact that we need our own gold markets. We can't rely on this system, you know, that that um, that the UK and the US have set up. And there are now alternatives. And you're starting to see some dissension among these markets as to what the price could be. There's a lot of infighting. And if you look at the charts, they're all different. So there's not consensus over what gold's valued at. and it does make money for the people that want to run the ARBs if, if you want to play the ARB between two different markets. But it's not legit. We're still not at the point where we have legitimate price discovery. And I think what that, in a nutshell, that presents a lot of risk to the banks. The four big banks that I mentioned that, that run the derivative markets and specifically the precious metals ones, if they lose control, Andy, they're in trouble. If, if because their scheme will be exposed for not having enough physical backing, not only now, but at all times in the past. What would that do to the confidence in, you know, those markets? They would collapse and people would move to these other markets. So, you know, as you mentioned, there are short term opportunities to do arbitration and prices like the EFP. And but people are looking for physical, you know. So they'll use the EFP for physical, they'll use COMEX delivery for physical, they'll go and buy it from the miners. You, that's happening more and more. And it's not just the central banks buying gold and silver. It's a lot of other people looking for gold and silver. It's interesting. There was a report out last year that the refiners 
who refine into the bars that go into like uh, London Good Delivery or any of these markets couldn't get enough uh, silver and gold from the miners. So they were actually buying it from people that would have brought it to the exchange. So we're now at the point where there's not enough physical production, specifically of silver, but also of gold that meets current physical demand. And you're starting to see signs of that across the market as well. So in other words, identify your point. However people can get to physical, they're already starting to do that. And eventually these derivative products that we talk about um, are gonna be realized for what they are, which were synthetic and never real. Uh, we never had the right prices and we're gonna, we're gonna figure out what the prices are. That process is underway. You know, every single liquidity provider I speak to, and some of them are exposed to all of these big markets, have no, have no respect for the London uh, fix, silver fix, gold fix. It, it's clearly ring-fenced, uh, it's siloed. Uh, the amount of volume that actually gets cleared is a tiny fraction of what is actually traded globally. You know, what, three tons a day, three, five tons maximum. You know, that's, that is absolute rubbish compared to what we're seeing transacted globally. And you just alluded, uh, talked about there are other exchanges that are alternative exchanges, physical exchanges. You can also go out and you can buy, uh, you can go and lock in a refiner. You can, these, the, the ability to do that through blockchain, et cetera, is all there now. And I think what's interesting to me, and excuse the helicopter going past here, I hope they're coming not to take me away, but, um, but, basically, uh, but basically, you know what? I, in 2013, what really, really was, it says it all. In about, I think it was 2013, I had to get rid of every single U.S. client. Um, they were, in other words, banned. U.S. clients were banned from trading the over-the-counter markets, i.e. Um, the foreign exchange crosses, the gold, silver crosses, foreign exchange crosses, siloing them back into purely trading the COMEX. So how ludicrous that was, because then... Within a few months, I think, I can't remember the rule number. You'd probably know better than me, but rule 506 or whatever it was. Suddenly we saw, oh, by the way, um, we're going to be putting market halts of, of five minutes on the COMEX. And we're going to be put on a three-minute market halt in the options markets to do with gold futures, silver futures. But guess what? These same actors who are making markets in the COMEX are also ma obviously making markets in the much larger over-the-counter markets, then they can continue to trade the spot market while COMEX traders are frozen for five solid minutes. This kind of, this is kind of like a, what do you call it? A, a, a line where it was so obvious this was a setup to keep control of what was beginning to uh, erode. Because in 2013, if you remember, we had ABN Mamoru already saying, sorry guys, uh, you, you, you can't get physical anymore. We're gonna settle you in paper. And then we, that was just before we saw that April smash down. Um, you probably remember uh, that April smash down, but all coincided with this ring fencing of uh, siloing uh, people into the casino, basically, with no vision as to what uh, the ability to, no vision or, or the ability to trade in where 
the wholesale market's really, uh, as you say, the COMEX is not deliverable. A you know, fraction never gets deliverable. It's a pain in the ass to even try and get delivery. You get run in circles. It's about moving gold from one side of the blue center line to the other. That's delivery. But um, yeah, I mean, what's your thoughts on, 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 on this ring fencing going on? Yeah, there's obviously an attempt to to corner and control the market when you have four large banks in the U.S. controlling derivatives market. And by the way, they also trade in other markets. You know, they they exert undue influence on prices because you you have to think about it. For example, I'll use an example. Years ago, I wanted to learn about finance. So I took a job with a a currency trading firm called FXCM, one Mm. of the largest currency trading firms in the U.S. And I got a series three license, which is in commodities, which includes gold, silver, but also in currencies. So I started to understand that market. And I started to figure out that there are big players in that market that really kind of, you know, control the currencies. But it really explained to me how a lot of these derivative markets work. Essentially, what happens is in all of these markets, you have these big players that have access to information and they know where the traders are. And their whole purpose is not to provide liquidity on the other side of that trade. Their whole purpose is not to provide transparency into the market. The whole purpose is to trade against their clients. So when you talk about four banks sitting on top of and running all the 200 trillion derivative complex in the U.S. banking system, the Western banking system, but also the precious metals derivative markets, they know where everybody is. They have that information and their goal is to trade against you. So when you get when when you rely on those markets, what you're relying on are people that are there to make money off the trades. If you think about where banks make their money, it's off of the exchange of money. It's not because they actually create a product like Apple creates an iPhone or Ford creates an automobile. They trade off of transactions. And so they're constantly trading against the people that are trying to use the market to hedge or or have exposure to the metals. And so their main purpose is not to facilitate a physically traded market. Their main purpose is not to facilitate price discovery. It's to make money and trade their book against everyone else. And that's what I learned at FXCM because FXCM for years, Andy had said, we're the only, uh, or we're the predominantly um, big currency trading platform in the US that does not trade against our book, does not trade against our customers. Well, they got busted for doing exactly that and eventually went out of business. So they were lying. You know, what that taught me was any firm that has your trade data is going to trade against you. And it's not about creating a legitimate market. It's not about getting you access to physical. It's about taking your money. And when you understand that about the banks and how they make their revenues and how they have their fingers into this entire pie, then you understand it's not about legitimate markets and it's not about transparency and it's not about finding price and it's not about liquidity provision. Um, They do that only as much as they need to, to facilitate them making money off the market. And from a greater perspective, they want that market to have a certain amount of volatility, Andy, because volatility is where you get price differences and that's where the banks make their money. So you can never rely on those systems to give you true price discovery or to tell you the way those markets should actually you know, be running if unfettered and unmanipulated. That, that's not the purpose. And when you figure that out, you start to figure out, okay, I need to independently examine this market and 
you know, take my own position outside of these markets. And when you talk about ring fencing, what that ring fencing does, what that manipulation does is it, it puts you into a playing field in which the goalposts are so close together, you're only allowed to do certain things if that makes sense. And that's how the control works. Now, it has the illusion of being an open market. Why? Because you have a lot of participants. But who are the participants trading through? The big banks. What do the big banks do? They have the data and they take the positions. And they control the markets that way because we've seen in these uh, fines of these banks that manipulate precious metal market how the traders from each of the banks will talk to each other and set positions together. So it's a, it's a collusive market, if you will. And we know that from testimony of the traders. That's come out in legal testimony of all of these cases, like with uh, Deutsche Bank or Morgan Stanley, all these, you know, JP Morgan, all these guys who got busted for manipulating the, the precious metals markets and get fined for it. They were admitting it was institutionalized that they're ring fencing the price. And it's not about transparency or a market, it's about making money. And it's about setting the price in a way in which you can make money. And until that system gets exposed and comes down, that's where you're not going to get the true price discovery in these markets that 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 people really want. And that's why if you're a metals investor, it really helps to pay attention to the fundamentals more than it does the spot price, for example. The spot price is a fabricated price that means absolutely nothing. All it is is the price is there for the banks to make money on against its own market, against the traders. That's why it's there. Yeah, and I think that this this is where the the um uh, the deliverable spot market uh, aspect the nsfrs um for gold that that actually began to change the game a little bit as far as the large the large uh, uh, deliverable over the counter market in uh, fx market should i say in uh, in the uk that is based in the uk uh, but it's global of course but but the one that i'd also illustrated that was where we had to get rid of every single us centric trader uh, sort of to 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 create this um, uh, sort of uh, ring fence situation, uh, but what you just talked about is exactly the kind of evidence we gave to the CFTC. Uh, Eighty-eight examples of where will the price be the next day sent to them in advance uh, through our lawyers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And every single time it it went to that price, and then it bounced. And it's like so. So I think what what we're saying is yes, there is collusion, and it took what, 10, 12 years for these guys to actually get charges against them. And this evidence was in front of them to react to, to in, in 2010. We, we gave a presentation to the DOJ in 2011 that put a PowerPoint on their wall showing them 88 examples through the lawyers that were sitting with us to say, yes, Here's an audited trail that they sent. The price would be here at this price tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's it's it. The collusion is there. The collusion is still there, um, even though. But it's starting to evaporate because I think one of the points you just made is the physical markets are moving outside of this ring fence, CME, LBMA, sort of siloed little casino where after March 2020, when we saw the EFBs blow apart. Uh, liquidity providers were turned upon. Uh, as you say, these guys were just playing with credit and were turned upon for delivery. Uh, and so we suddenly had this, these two rivals, the CME and the LBMA coming together to, out of necessity to try and ring fence this, this situation. 
And as a result of that, but what we're seeing, as you've just said, is this, but you can trade elsewhere and you can actually go to physical markets elsewhere, um, global physical markets, which I think is so, uh, this is, we're going to look in the rearview mirror at all this stuff. And Rob, you know, I think one of the things you're trying to say to people is here, look, look, do your own research, make your own mind up. But God, you know, look at the physical side of the market, not the paper side. Yeah, you have to look at the physical side and you have to talk to wholesalers and precious metals dealers and listen to people like yourself and your show and, and other shows. And, and, and like you said, examine the data for yourself. Don't, don't ever assume that the people that dominate the market or even their regulators are going to tell you the full truth about what's going on. If there's anything that I learned as an auditor, the regulators often are either captured agencies because they're run by people who used to work for the financial system and or they're never given the resources to properly do their job. The CFTC has no teeth with regards to regulating the precious metals markets. It lacks true audit capability, it lacks true oversight, and it lacks true uh, penalty-making ability for people if there's malfeasance. And so you can't assume just because there is a market and a regulator that everything's up to oil. Mm -hmm. you, you have to really dive down and understand how the markets work. And like you said, people are going around, you have sovereigns going around the Western markets. Mm -hmm. You have refiners going around the Western markets. And now you have precious metals dealers. For example, two of my friends have started a business where they'll buy thousand ounce silver bars off of one of the depositories. I got one physically delivered from the Dakota depository to my home. And then they'll either cut the bars or remelt them and sell them straight off of the COMEX either the thousand ounce bars or a smaller re re poured bar to get people access to that, to that silver. So we're, and what they're doing is they're skipping the supply chain. They're going directly to the, to the largest source they can. They're pulling it off. They're redistributing it. And there are all sorts of these types of things going on because people have realized if you're just in that system, your ability to gain physical when you need it or to get good pricing, you know, you can't. And so everybody's building these bridges around, you know, in these roads around the Western derivative complex in precious metals. And whenever that happens, it's akin to de-dollarization. When people start use, stop using the dollar, the dollar falls, right? We see that with China, Russia, and the BRIC nations and the Belt and Road. Well, the same thing has been done uh, to the precious metals market. People are moving around the existing system and building new pathways and new trade routes and new agreements. And um, it's being done organically, and it's not something that they can control. So the control will erode over these derivative markets when people stop trading them, and that's what's happening. And so any way in which, you know, if you're a retail investor, whether you're wealthy or not, look for providers that aren't necessarily part of the old system that have found innovative ways to get you access to pressure metal. You'll find better pricing, and you'll find better availability. My hypothesis, Andy, is that when the system freezes up, if you go to your traditional dealer or you go to the COMEX, it's not going to be there. Mm -hmm. You're going to have had to have developed alternative relationships yeah. to actually get access to metal. Because when there's a run, when this thing finally breaks, and it will, yeah. when it does during the next deep recession, there's going to be a run to metals, but the metal's not going to be there because it's not in these tr traditional derivative markets or the traditional supply chain. It's going to be in these other methods that people are building right now to build a freer, 
more democratic precious metals market. And, and I think it helps people to be aware of that and understand that. Yeah, and what you're saying is ultimately a real physical price will emerge from true supply demand fundamentals. Now, if I was to offer silver at 50 bucks today, I'd have I'd certainly get, you know, I'd get somebody to take it. I mean, you know, I, you're going to find a price equilibrium, whether gold, maybe gold 3000. I don't know where the price is, whatever it is, there's plenty of physical at the right price. But there's no yeah. physical available at this paper dil diluted price. So right. I think, as you say, when the merry-go-round stops, and it will, as you've just said, absolutely it will, um, then is that you will be struggling to find anybody willing to sell you anything for a period of time until it evolves. And you will sit there on the sideline and you'll see silver at 200 bucks. Uh, you'll see gold at three, four thousand bucks. I mean, or whatever the price is, you'll be left without. And he, you know who's going to benefit? The irony of this, who's going to benefit from this is the average Indian farmer cycling down a dusty path with kilos and kilos of, of accrued dowries and gold unsold in his possession. I mean, it's, this is it's mind blowing. It's a tectonic shift. People don't realize the average American. Rob, what does the average American own? Is it an ounce? Is it two? I don't know. They, they, Andy, they might own some 14K jewelry that's blended with some base metals. And, and you're lucky if they have a silver or a gold coin, if, 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 if even that much. Wow. I mean, so this is this is May and we're at an inflection point. And and I think you just mentioned, you know, we, we also mentioned the, the BRICS currency basket. I think one of the interesting things about that and, and is that um, is that so, silver, even though it's a tiny market, is probably the most undervalued commodity on the planet Earth. And when it is going to be a component of many, many things will comprise of this basket, many commodities, etc. But silver being so undervalued, it's going to be a hell of a lot higher up on the list than it should be <laughs> because it's just so undervalued. And the buying of physical um, will take this, will break this, this um, break the SLV completely. Um, people will come to the SLV for delivery and they won't get it. It just won't be there. There's no way um, it's going to be there at that price, at whatever the price evolves to. And they've, they've played that game before, but they'll lose control. But I think one of the interesting things was you talked about the four market makers um, in the OCC report. And, and I think let's just talk, maybe finish up on, on nickel. And, okay. and <laughs> JP Morgan on, on March the 7th, uh, JP Morgan um, made this statement, uh, I think it was on Bloomberg. Um, look, we're gonna look to exit uh, the base metal space. Well, this morning I heard on Bloomberg that they finally into the into quarter end have exited the base metals space to provide liquidity to the base metal space, along with, I think, Standard Chartered and one or two others, but certainly definitely JP Morgan. But the relationship I have with one of the very largest, sometimes culprit first tier bank, but who who are definitely going along gold and silver for their own personal books. but. But basically, um, tell us that JP Morgan is trying to call their silver leases back in a hurry. 
And I think it's part of the reason that we're seeing this terrible action in silver at the moment, where they're just literally desperately trying to close off a massive over-the-counter position that is, is really for causing them potentially an issue where they won't get their silver that they've leased to the Bank of America and other people. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it seems as though JP Morgan and even some of the other banks are trying to liquidate some of their their silver short positions and and dumping a lot of stuff on the market. And you see the volatility in silver, you see it, you know, not performing as you normally would expect silver to perform. And the question is, who's gonna be left holding the bag in this silver market? Is JP Morgan gotten really smart and said, Okay, we played our role, we're now out of it and we're reducing our exposure. I mean, one of the th interesting things I saw, Andy, in the derivative report, and this is something to note with respect to JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. They're two of the large dominant players in the precious metals market, but they're dominant in the rest of the derivatives. And in that office of the comptroller report, since last year, the amount of value at risk, and value at risk in, in plain English means what they could lose in, in risk because of their derivative exposure has gone up so much for JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs that that's probably why they got to get out of some of these markets. They're literally hundreds of millions of dollars more at risk than they were a year, a year and a half ago because of their derivative exposure. So they have to wind it down because according to Basel standards, if their value at risk, what they could lose keeps going up, it could make them insolvent. So I would say it's a bit of a victory for people like you and me who, who have been talking about this for years that we've put enough pressure on these big banks that they're having to capitulate some of their positions. Because I think people know what's really going on with the precious metals market. And it's forcing these banks to exit their positions. They cannot be exposed if the price moves against them. If silver hits $30, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs and crew or could be in trouble from a derivatives perspective. And so it's interesting to see how they began to unwind these positions. And, and, and not only, like you said, they're not just getting out of silver, getting out of nickel. JP Morgan in particular had the highest value at risk spike in the last year. So that will tell you, you know, how much of a role they played in the precious metals derivatives markets and the pricing and how much they need to get out because they were overexposed. And I think that's why they could run afoul of Basel III requirements if they continue to maintain all their, all their positions in these markets. And what's even worse for, for the banking system is if they maintain them and we had a deep recession and, and what happens if JP Morgan defaults? There's one thing to say if Lehman defaults. What happens if JP Morgan defaults? What does that do to global banking? So I think as we get closer to the realization of all this risk in the system, you're seeing some of the biggest players try to get out of the way of what's going to be, I think, a coming tsunami in economic and financial risk, which, again, is going to benefit those that hold the precious metals. Because where do you go to safety? You go to true wealth. It is the precious metals it's always been. And we're seeing J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs try to unwind those positions and get out of the, out of the way of that. And so that tells me we're closer to the point at which we're going to hit the next recessionary cycle and you're going to have people fly to the metals and we'll probably at that point have a better idea of, of who has the metal, how much is really available, what people are willing to get it up for, give it up for, you know, in, in the market and what it's truly worth. And I think we're getting closer and closer to that point. Yeah. And I think the, the sanction blowbacks 
Um, obviously, that's what triggered the, the initially triggered the the nickel um, uh, debacle because it was a debacle. I mean, while you can settle, while you can ring fence the LME and do a settlement and settle everybody nicely into that little box, silver and gold are currency crosses. So you know, fully fully functioning currency crosses. You cannot ring fence them. Uh, once it blows, it blows. And these are two big, you just talked about some two big to fail taxpayer funded banks here who on both sides of the Atlantic are ready to implode. Yes, they, you're right. They have to exit these positions. And I think the sanction blowbacks have accelerated the pro process. So it, it, it's so interesting. And um, I really thank you. But look, you know what I was going to mention? Because when we first started talking before we started here, you were, you, you were very instrumental in, in auditing some very good work about the Perth Mint. Is there any updates on that? Because I've, I've kind of lost track of that. Uh, and can you just very quickly outline, I know we're running, low, you know, running out of time here, but if you could just very quickly outline this Perth Mint, Perth Mint situation, how it came about. I know you did some audit work on there, uh, which gave it great provenance, but w w what did you discover? Yeah, to sum it up, uh, I'm a former auditor. I was trained at KPMG and EY in both technical and financial statement audit. Not a CPA, but I do have 12 years of audit experience. And I teamed with a friend who's a certified financial analyst, a CFA, who, ha who happens to live in London right now. And so we, the thing about the Perth Mint being a, one of these quasi-governmental entities is it has to have published financial reports, unlike a lot of private mints. So, so we went through the Perth Mint and over a period of weeks, looked at their financial data and through auditing and financial techniques, we built out what their balance sheet should be. In other words, we reverse engineered their financial reports to figure out what they had. And in a nutshell, what they were doing was they were selling metal to customers in one of these pooled or semi-allocated accounts in which they didn't actually have the metal. They, they had a receivable for the metal and that had grown to almost a billion dollars Aussie. It was something like 929 million. And so essentially, if people, if, if a sizable amount of people who had bought Perth Mint Metal that supposedly they had, gold and silver, were to go get it and take delivery, it would have bankrupted the Perth very quickly. And at least a billion dollars of that value would be lost for its customers. But what was really interesting, Andy, was some of the metal that had been purchased by their customers, the Perth Mint had given that metal to an outside entity. According to the CEO, it was an S&P rated one. So we're talking about a major exchange or a major bank or a big player, a single one that had used that gold and silver for some purpose. And then it took a long time for the perk to get it back. So they floated their customer metal to this entity to bail them out, essentially, on their precious metals trade. And then the Perth Mint eventually started winding that down. The conclusion of that was the Perth Mint sold there, there's an ETF and a pooled account that were part of this. They sold the ETF to Goldman. As soon as Goldman got it, they said, you cannot redeem a physical metal. Now, tell me, Andy, how much confidence you have that the metal that's sitting in that ETF is actually there. If as soon as Goldman takes it, they say, we're suspending your redemption rights. You can't get the physical. So the Perth Mint has transferred some of that to one of their banking partners. They have, they have also you know, uh, reduced their net short exposure to the metals where they didn't actually have it. But the last that we looked, the last published financial reports, they were still short about 300 million. 
So there's still risk for the Perth customers, but those who had bought the ETF expecting to be able to redeem their metals can no longer do it. And the biggest point, though, was the Perth had done that through retail selling to bail out a big counterparty, supposedly maybe to bail out the gold and silver market. Now, did that happen during silver squeeze? You know, did that happen, you know, at a time at which the COMEC couldn't really deliver all the gold? We don't know. But we know that the Perth Mint was part of a bigger scheme to provide liquidity and not be honest with their customers and put their customers at risk. So the takeaway is if you're buying metal stored somewhere, make sure that they have a good audit report, they're reputable, you can get delivery of your metals when you need it, and, and just go to a good company. What Perth Mint illustrated was it's likely, Andy, that a lot of these people that are selling into the retail market don't have the metal or somebody else is using that metal. It's been rehypothecated and you yeah. don't actually own it. And, and that's the takeaway. Be very careful. Make sure you do your research. If you're buying metal from one of these big mints or storage uh, facilities or storage providers, make sure that you really have good auditor reports. You have chain of title. You have redemption rights for your metal and uh, be very careful of using a pooled or semi-allocated account like they have at the Perth Mint because more than likely they don't have the metal that you feel that you purchased. I mean, really, I mean, it says it all. I mean, that, that puts it into a nice little nutshell. Um, exactly, if they can do it, then obviously it, it, you're just really lifting the lid on a much, much bigger situation. Yes. And um, But you know what? Rob, I thank you so much for your time. I think we 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 didn't even get over half of what I wanted to talk about because we have to have you back, my friend, and and I will come back and uh, come back come on your show as well. Um, but it, thank you so much for your time, um, people. Uh, I guess really what we're saying is both of us are saying the same word: how much physical do you own? That's essentially it. And thank you for having me on your program, Andy. I love this program. And you have been one of the, you know, the guiding lights for a lot of us in this process, trying to understand this market. And I appreciate everything that you've done over the years for helping guys like me really understand the precious metals and, and how all of this stuff really works. Thank you, Rob. That's, that's, uh, I feel privileged that you said that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew McGuire and Robert Keynes for another fascinating discussion and talking gold. And we want to hear from you, our live from the vault community. Who would you like to see as a guest on this show? Uh, you can have your say right now by just clicking the link in the description below and head over to our Twitter and simply reply to the tweet by tagging your dream live from the vault guest and we'll be keeping a close eye on the results and we'll get back to you on that. And you never know who you're going to see on the next show. So with that, remember to buy physical and understand the difference between what Andy affectionately calls the casino paper gold and silver markets and the actual physical gold and silver markets they're not the same. Don't be fooled. Buy physical. And there you have it. That's all we have for you today on another episode of Live from the Vault. Please help spread the word by, you know, shout out. Like, give it, send this channel out and send the link out to people that you know. Hit the like button, by the way. Share it out. Subscribe. And don't forget to click on that bell if you'd like to be notified as each episode goes live. And with that, we'll see you next time on Live from the Vault. See you then.